course, like every other teenage kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. When I was 16 years old, I took off and drove across the country to Wyoming, went into the Wind River Range and discovered mountains. In 1973, Yvonne Chouinard founded Patagonia. I never wanted to be a businessman. All I wanted to do was do my craft and climb mountains. So then I had to figure out a way to where I was going to be a businessman, but I was going to do it completely on my own terms. Build the best product, cause no unnecessary harm, inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. Join us at Patagonia.com. I'm such a like video geek from watching skateboard videos and mountain bike videos uh, forever that like I've always like, wanted to go. This is Chris Reichel, and in April he did go to his first Five Point Film Festival. As part of their laundry list of tasks to make sure the festival comes off without a hitch, the Five Point Sarahs, Sarah Wood and Sarah Yule, work to coordinate rides and places to stay for the festival's special guests. This year they were herding details for around 70 cats. It was pretty relaxed, like, hey, you guys, you're big boys and girls. You got a smartphone. Here's the address. This is where you're staying. Chris arrived in Carbondale right as the festivities were starting. So he punched the address he'd been given into his phone and went to find the Airbnb where he'd be staying with some filmmakers. Like, street viewed it you know, on my phone to make sure that it was the right place. Little white picket fence with blue scallop siding. And I dropped my bags in the sunroom on the porch and then went back to the festivities because there's so much fun stuff going on. <laughs> I never actually went in the house. After the films that first night, some folks had organized a midnight mountain bike ride up a local trail. And so I rushed over to where my stuff was and put my lights on my bike and, and changed my clothes right there on the porch. So it didn't feel like going into the house for some reason. <laughs> and went about our way and went on a night ride. Had a really good ride and swerved back to the house where my things were. And uh, finally decided to go in the house. And I go into the house, uh, it doesn't look like an Airbnb of any kind I've ever seen. It's like kind of crazy cat lady cluttered and, you know, and, you know, I had a couple beers on the ride, so I might not be all that, all that sharp at that hour of the morning. And so I, I go to the living room and I, I call Sarah. It was 4.30 when he called me. It was like, I don't think I'm at the right house. How do I tell? This is Sarah Wood. And I was like, dude, do you have the address? And he's like, yeah, but there's nothing on the door. There's nothing on the house, front of the house. How do I tell? And I was like, go inside. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and she's like, is there a couch? And I was like, I'm sure it's fine, dude. Just sleep on the couch tonight. It's, it's, It'll be fine. It's Carbondale. Even if it's the wrong house. You'll figure it out in the morning. Like, I don't really feel comfortable doing that. Like, you know, so she started giving me a little pep talk. She's like, you got this. I was like here at the office. You got this. You can do it. And I'm like, oh, I, don't, I just don't want to. And as she's saying, you got this for the third time, I hear footsteps come from, from upstairs. And then this, the person came down like, when we were on the phone. And around the corner, steps around an older gentleman wearing nothing but a T-shirt and nothing else. He looks at me and he goes, son, I think you're in the wrong house. But yeah, I, I know I'm in the wrong house. <laughs> <laughs> and I gathered up all my things and and ran outside and, you know, yard sale all over the front yard, all my stuff. I didn't know how to, like, organize it, laptops and cameras and, and riding gear and a bike. And I'm just, like, this gibbering mess at 5 o'clock in the morning. And I keep looking at the address, and it's the right address. Like, 
house is not the right house. And I didn't know where to go. And there was no house numbers in the houses. So I just went over to the rec center where the film festival was and found a little park bench to sleep on until the sun came up. <laughs> until Sarah Ull found me and like walked me to the proper house, like a lost child, <laughs> seven in the morning. <laughs> Welcome to five points. Where you may not be able to find your bed, but you always know that you're home. (laughs) 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 This is the sixth year we've made our annual pilgrimage to the Five Point Film Festival. From night rides to midnight dodgeball, yes, complete with short shorts, headbands, and knee socks, This is where the outdoor storytelling community gathers to share what they've worked on all year. Adventures, expeditions, films, and photographs. And we love the chance to do a live event. Instead of interviewing a few folks involved with the films, this year we're doing something a little different. At the beginning of his writing career, before Semirad.com, I know, can you remember way back then? Brendan Leonard wrote a short for the Dirtbag Diaries called 60 Meters to Anywhere. This spring, he published a book under the same title. It recounts his journey from handcuffs to hand jams, from rural Iowa to the mountains of Colorado, from business casual to assignments for Climbing Magazine, and his patented semi-rad writing style. Today, we bring you a lightly edited version of the presentation Brendan gave at the 2016 Five Point Film Festival. I'm Becca Cajal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Welcome to Five Point. So I'm going to get started. Uh, this is my show. The reason for doing this is I have a, have a new book that came out this week called 60 Meters to Anywhere. And uh, it's, a, it's a story of, it's this story, but this is going to have way more jokes and a lot more profanity because um, it's a live audience. So I'd like to welcome everyone to the <laughs> first ever Five Point Film and Book Festival. I'm going to briefly go through my, my life, of course, this is where it started. Like everybody else in this room, I was small at one point. I had a fairly normal childhood. We were lucky enough a few years, I call them like the fat years, when we were able to like go skiing, you know? And we would, we would go to Steamboat before it was huge and cool. And we had that double chairlift for some reason, like right next to each other. And I didn't realize at the time, but my parents were kind of dirtbags. Like we, we rented a condo and all the kids slept on the floor, like all these families all went in together and uh, kids skied free so like oh I I didn't know this I thought we were like rich taking a ski vacation Um, but as I grew up of course I was uh, living in Iowa which when you're in the middle of the country you're you're far from the mountains so I I kind of forgot about them a little bit focused on things like reading books all-american stuff like playing sports and I started drinking when I was 15 um, like a lot of kids in my hometown and I think, uh, you know, you, you do this for a bunch of different reasons, probably in a small towns because you're bored. Um, for me, it was like finding the missing piece, you know, and like as they tell you when you start to uh, get into like addiction and studies about it and stuff like that, you first start out and it's all fun and then you have, you know, fun with problems and then you, you end up just having problems, you know. And it all came to a pretty abrupt halt over the course of about a year, um, which I look back on as probably one of the 
harder years of my life. And one of the studies I've read recently says addiction is kind of a thing of loneliness. You know, like that's why you do it. It's not like this genetic predisposition to like completing a, you know, a chemical chain or whatever. And I think I was. But I realize now with a, a lot of time to look back on it that I was really just becoming a bad person. I thought I was trying to have fun, but I was doing all these things that like I regretted or like were hurting people around me. And, um, you know, I would say like if you've like accidentally smoked crack or like got in a car airborne with the beer between your legs, maybe, maybe you should take a hard look at, you know, what you're doing. Um, but I got arrested several times to the point where I was like getting pretty used to the inside of jails and waking up going, oh boy, again, you know. And the final time, they set a bail for me. This is the beginning scene in my book, or like $3,000, which I thought was pretty hefty. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm not really doing anything that bad, right, guys? And I had to call a friend, Dave, to like, you know, you're like on the jail phone, and like you're hanging out with these two guys who like robbed somebody the night before, and you're like, hmm, you know. And I called Dave, and I'm like, I know you don't have $3,000, but I guess if you have like 10%, they'll like let me out of here based on like, your faith in me that I'm going to show up for court. Is that, can you do that? And Dave somehow had to put his like car title on the line. He came and picked me up. We went out to breakfast. I felt horrible. I got back to my apartment and for 24 hours, I was just kind of trapped there in a blizzard, just kind of going, what am I going to do now? Because every other time I've woken up in jail, I've just gone right back. And like, I mean, the last time I got arrested, I just like went and decided I was going to drink all white Russians that evening. And I didn't even, they took my driver's license. So I had to go up to the bartender and be like, here's a piece of paper that says the cops took my driver's license, but it says I'm 21. And he's like, cool, what do you want to drink? And I'm like, I have a white Russian. I'm like, you're like, yeah, okay. You're a disaster, you know, at this point. <laughs> so at this point in my life is probably the lowest I've ever felt. You know, like alcoholics and addicts will call it rock bottom. Um, and of course, that's how you feel. You're like, boy, I have to make an extreme change here. And uh, this is what later in life I would kind of like realize is like this thing I call the Big Bang Theory of Extreme Joy. So we have this myth in our culture, you know, that there's this time of, you know, infinite possibility. And it's when you're young, when you're good looking, the, the world is your oyster, and certainty is low and possibility is high. And that only happens once, and the rest of it is just like that John Mellencamp song, you know, like, oh yeah, the best days of our lives are behind us and it all sucks now, you know, and like, Remember when we were good looking and hanging out at the Tasty Freeze and making out in the backseat of the car? And, but what I've realized is that, that you can kind of recreate this feeling in a different way. And it happens for me. This is my personal theory that's totally unscientific. But when you blow things up and start over again, you have extreme possibility. And that's, that's this period in my life. I'm a disaster. What am I going to do? I have to quit drinking, right? Lucky for me, the state of Iowa thought it would be a great idea for me to go to substance abuse treatment, which is rehab, which is not like they lock you in a room and like you have the shakes and stuff. I had to like go after work for three hours a day for five weeks. So the big changes in my life are pretty represented by these pieces of paper. My completion of the rehab program, which I successfully did, a letter of acceptance to the University of Montana graduate school. and. Uh, a piece of paper that I had to carry around with me from my probation officer from the Department of Correctional Services, which is not a real standard piece of like grad school paperwork you bring with you, but it was like, okay, if you're anywhere and a police officer pulls you over, you got to get this piece of paper out and say, yeah, it's okay for me to travel. My probation officer said so. So needless to say, when we were introducing ourselves the first day of class, people were like, what'd you do this summer? And I was like, oh, you know, 
went to jail for a week, went to rehab, now I'm here, I'm gonna be a writer. Uh, they were all doing rad shit, like hiking the Appalachian Trail, or traveling all over the world, or like, you know, doing another master's degree, and I was like, yeah, I got a, I got a master's degree fucking up, but here I am. So I went to the University of Montana, um, classic story where you move west to reinvent yourself. Awesome thing. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows anything about my past, you know. Uh, bad thing, I have no friends. I have no car. I have no money. I, like, I don't know what to do on Friday nights, you know. That's the worst part. So I'm in this weird spot where I'm like 23 and I'm young and all, you know, and I'm like, and all of these neighbors of mine and kids I go to school with are like, you want to go get a beer? And I'm like, oh boy, it's a long story, but no, you know, or like, how do I explain this to people? So super awkward, you know, very lonely time in my life, probably the hardest year of my life. But I got invited to go to Glacier National Park with my cousin and, uh, and I felt this thing, you know, while I was up there and I'm like, I'm in the mountains and I'm like, God, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And you know, I had been to Colorado several times as a kid, you know, and you don't know shit when you're a kid. You like go skiing and you're like, you don't notice anything around you. You're just like, I want to go fast. I want to jump off stuff. And you miss the whole, whatever it is, soulful part of this that, uh, that you feel when you're there. And I, I didn't get what was happening, but I'm like, yeah, I just want to come back here. And like, I know I suck at this and I really don't belong. And maybe I could use some better gear, but this is really, really cool. So I got my master's degree and I moved to Phoenix. And I tried to get a job for a couple weeks at newspapers. And it turns out people in a big market like Phoenix don't really look at people right out of college and say, oh yeah, we want you to be the next columnist for our newspaper. They also didn't tell us in grad school that newspapers were kind of, you know, dying. Like, not exactly like, oh yeah, we're hiring a shitload of people this year. It's like, no, they're not. Not at all, buddy. Um, so I got my first job, which was working the sales floor at REI. I took my master's degree, started to sell sleeping bags. First day, I didn't know anything about sleeping bags, uh, any of this stuff, and I had to learn in a real hurry, because people would come in with actual questions, and I would be like, yeah, oh boy, let me look at the tags here. Uh, but, uh, but I made it. And these guys I worked with, you know, it was like everybody's outdoorsy there, and um, they would always tell me, you know, like, hey, you gotta go climbing with us, you gotta go climbing. And I'm like, what do you mean climbing? And they're like, rock climbing. And I'm like, oh, the, the rock is silent, I guess. That's, okay, cool. And I'm like, nah. Really, I'm all set, you know, that looks scary as shit, and I'm, I'm good, you know, I haven't really done that much in the outdoors, and I'm having fun doing what I'm doing, but, you know, thanks for the offer, you know, maybe, maybe we go hiking sometime, hiking's pretty cool, you know. And then I go home for Christmas that year, and uh, my brother, who had, he'd like picked up climbing in, in uh, college, and had been doing a little climbing at the climbing gym, and, and he had bought a rope and a harness and a few carabiners and stuff, and he'd not used it whatsoever, you know, so he like, piled this rope into a box like uh, I mean, he didn't even coil it or anything it was just like this big pile in a box under the Christmas tree and I open it I'm just like cool you know like what the hell am I gonna do with this I don't need this you know like and he's like oh I thought you're you're gonna be out west maybe you'd pick up some climbing and I was like yeah I'm terrified of it but sure whatever you know so I take it back to Phoenix with me and these guys take me out and they, they tell you all the stuff you're supposed to do when you first start climbing which is like use your feet don't, don't overgrip things, breathe. You know, I did none of those things. And I was terrified. I went out a couple times. I led a few routes. I took a couple falls and I was just like, you know, I'm probably done with this. And I was on the phone with my friend Nick and he was like, yeah, I just uh, quit my job and I'm 
I'm running ski lifts in Breckenridge. You should come here and live. And I'm like, yeah, great, sure, let's do that. You know, I was not not into Phoenix that much. I was a really big city, so we moved to Colorado. And on the way there, we go to Zion National Park, and we're on the bus that goes through the middle of the canyon. And my girlfriend and I are sitting on the on the bus, riding it back at dusk. You know, and, and these three guys get on the bus. Uh, they weren't even at a bus stop. The bus driver just stopped for them because the, they were like hitchhiking. I was like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. You know. Um, and they all get on, they have like dirty as shit, and they have like knee pads and a bunch of climbing gear and stuff. And the bus driver's like, what route were you guys on? The guy goes, space shot. And I go, man, that's cool. And I'm just kind of, it must have been very visible, because my girlfriend at the time looks over and goes, do you want to ask those guys for their autograph? And I was like, oh, no, no, that's cool. Whatever, you know. But I was like, I was kind of falling in love with, with that idea. We moved to Denver. I got a job at a newspaper. It was about one-tenth as sexy as Robert Redford and all the president's men. You know, like, you're making, like, $25,000 a year, and they're like, you have to dress in business casual. I'm like, I can't afford it, but I'll go to Goodwill and get some dress pants. And it was okay. Um, you know, it was, it was a cool thing that I got a job, and it allowed me to actually go into the mountains. Um, I went and did a bunch of sport climbing, got back into it slowly, actually breathed, actually used my feet. Still fairly terrified, but was starting to have a good time, you know. Climbed a bunch of routes, took a couple falls. You know, and, and this is like, I don't know however many people in the audience are climbers, but you know, when you look at this type of thing and you're, you're from where I'm from, it looks really dangerous. And I'm like thinking to myself, God, this is kind of terrifying when you fall and you're like trusting this little tiny rope and these little pieces of gear and hopefully this all holds and you don't smash into the ground. And I'm like, yeah, it's kind of dangerous, but like, Boy, some of the stuff I was doing like, you know, eight years ago was way more dangerous than this, you know, and like nobody's actually gonna arrest me for, for rock climbing, I don't think. So I'm starting to have this identity. I'm like, no longer am I just this guy who like for years I was just like, I don't know what I am, but I know I can't drink anymore. I'm not like I'm a recovering alcoholic, which is like the negative thing. They're like, so what do you do? Well, I don't do this. I'm like, cool, I I don't fish, you know, I don't drive race cars. Oh, nice to meet you. I have no, no more information. So now I'm like, like I'm a climber, you know? Which to me is super sexy. And, uh, and around this time, I kind of got, I was getting bored with my newspaper job, and it was a pretty small newspaper. You had the feeling that no one was reading it. So I'm like, every night I'm going home and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna write a story for Outside Magazine. I got rejected by pretty much everybody, and sometimes people were so busy they didn't even mail a rejection letter anymore. And around this time, my friend Nick sent me this ad for this uh, organization called Big City Mountaineers. And uh, I'm like, this sounds cool, you know? Like, it's like, it's 12 bucks an hour. I'm like, holy shit. I don't even know if I can live off of that. So I managed to take a $10,000 pay cut from a newspaper job, which is like, it's an achievement in America. <laughs> but I walked into my interview, and they're like, oh, thanks for wearing a tie. And I was like, I don't know, I'm serious. And, and they interviewed me, and then we start talking about climbing gear and stuff. And I was like, oh, these are my people, you know? Like my previous job, I would come in from a weekend, and they'd be like, what'd you do this weekend? And I'd be like, well, I climbed, oh, oh nothing. Just kind of went out in the outdoors a little bit. What'd you do? Yeah, I went to the Broncos game. Cool, yeah, all right. You know, but these are my people. I'm finding my people. And uh, as part of my job there, every, every year I got to go on a one-week backpacking trip with a bunch of kids from inner city uh, in Portland or San Francisco. And... Uh, I think, you know, at this point, I don't really know shit about the outdoors, but teaching these guys, I mean, most of these kids could kick my ass, obviously. Like, they're, they are tough kids living in tough neighborhoods. 
but they were terrified of taking a shit in the woods, you know, like some of them, it was like counseling, you know, I was just like, hey, come on, man, we'll go over here, I'll dig the hole, I'll give you some privacy, you know, here's some, here's some rocks, you know, like the first trip I went on, somebody forgot to like, I think we were packing toilet paper at that time, but we somehow didn't, and the kids were terrified of that, and I gave this kid Eric, I'm like, no. he's like, I'm like, yeah, just use a rock, and he's like, oh my God, doesn't that hurt? And I'm like, no, you just like, just dab, you know, you're not like, don't like, like, it's not like sandpaper, don't like abrade it, you know, and I gave, I was like, here, like, take this little smooth rock, you know, and after the trip's over, we're unpacking, everybody's just elated, they survived, and, you know, didn't get killed by a bear or whatever, and Eric is emptying out his backpack and giving us all the gear back, and he's holding this rock, and I go, what is that? And he goes, that's that rock you gave me, and I'm like, you didn't use it? And he's like, no, I'm keeping it, you know, like, awesome, buddy, good, good for you, that's great. And then this, uh, one of these trips was at the time, the, the website Stuff White People Like was, uh, was really popular, if anybody remembers that. And uh, we, so we got on our own like kind of freestyle topic about it, and this kid Denzel goes, white people love to do hella dangerous shit, like rock climbing and skydiving. And I was like, yeah, I, I kind of do do that stuff, I guess, you're right. And gives you some perspective, and these kids are just terrified every day going to school, like what a privilege it is to go like, essentially risk your life and do these beautiful things in the mountains. I was working at the nonprofit and kind of like getting a little frustrated and have enough time to write and try to pitch these stories because I kind of was getting a few more things like wrote a story for the Dirtbag Diaries, had a couple episodes there, um, kind of making some headway at some like smaller magazines and like nothing I could really make a living out of. But uh, I, I got this offer to just write copy for a large technology company. Um, and I was like, God, it's, you know, it's not what I want to do, but it's kind of like it would be a lot of freedom. So I called Fitz, and we talked, and he said, absolutely take that job. And I was like, great, I'll take the job. And uh, so I did. So I was getting paid to write, and, like, I went to the trade show, the outdoor retailer trade show, and somebody, I had business cards printed up, you know, like, for my freelance career, and somebody came up to me, and a friend introduced us, and they said, Brendan, what do you do? And I go, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a writer. And I was, like, trying on this new sweater, and I'm like, all right. All right, I'm doing it. I'm a writer. Okay. But what it did was uh, free me up for a little bit. So I had a little time. And I got, I didn't want to lose touch with, uh, you know, the outdoor side of what I was doing. So I created this website called semirad.com. I don't know if anybody's read it. My mom is a huge fan. Um, <laughs> and I was like, you know, I know this guy Fitz who, like, people wouldn't publish his stuff. So he just started reading stories into a recorder. And, Look where that went. So maybe this will go somewhere. I don't know. Maybe I just want to write funny stories about shitting in the woods, and people will like that. Um, so I bought the URL and had this like very cheap template, and um, you know started writing these stories. And a few of them started taking off. And things are just kind of starting to happen a little bit. Around the same time, I got my first story in Climbing Magazine, which I turned in like two years ago before this, and they had gotten bought out, and the editors switched. Of course, it got lost in the shuffle and. But the editor emailed me and said, hey, we want to run this. And I'm like, oh, you're kidding me? Awesome. Like, this is amazing. It's the biggest climbing magazine in the world. Like, OK, big time. And like, you don't even have to pay me, but you could, you know, if you want to. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, we're going to put it on the cover. Oh, we're going to put you in like the front, the contributor section, the front page. And I'm just like over the moon, you know, like, holy shit, now I'm a writer, like for real. Like, so it's starting to happen. And then at this time, what I would think of as big bang number two in my life happens, my relationship ends right around the time my apartment lease is up, and I hated this apartment anyway, it sucked. So, I was like, I moved into my car, um, 
which is another way of creating a big bang in your life because you're completely out on your ass. You know, you're like, I'm thinking, you're like, where I come from, this is a horrible thing. You know, like, it's cool in Colorado and Utah. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to go live in my car at Indian Creek. And people are like, that's so rad. And like, you know, if you're in Des Moines and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go live in my car. They're like, holy shit, man, are you okay? Like, do you need a place to stay? And, but I'm like having the time of my life, having this big adventure. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. I'm like 32, and I feel like I'm, I'm young again. And I'm like driving around the West, grabbing scraps of paper off the seat of my car, writing notes on a steering wheel. I'm like, I'm going to write a book about this. It's so cool. Road trips, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I got sick of the car because it was a 96 Subaru Impreza. And uh, I went down to uh, South Broadway in Denver and bought a 2005 Chevy Astro van from a guy named Wayne at Johnny's Auto Sales in Pawn, which is uh, not, a, not a reputable dealership. Um, but it was like the only Astro van for sale at that time. And I was like, this is a van big enough to sleep in. I can, I can live in this thing. And it has all-wheel drive. And, Immediately, I drove it away and had to spend like $3,000 repairing it. Um, so obviously, it was a good investment. But I'm having this great time just being like decentralized. Like I had this, I was in Jackson at the bagel shop, the 13th Street Bagels, and I had to take a conference call for IBM. And I was like, at the point where I really probably should have gone back to Denver and gotten an apartment and settled back in and done my thing. And I was like, I'm just going to see how long I can get away with this. And I'm like, it's loud in the coffee shop. So I go in the front seat of my car, and I'm sitting there, and I call into the conference call, and they're like, oh, boop, I'm, I'm in from San Francisco in this office. I'm from Chicago. And I'm like, cool, yep, I'm Brendan, here I am. And people are walking by my car, and I'm like, take this whole call. And I'm like, yep, okay, Diane, yep, I'll get that stuff to you on Monday. Perfect, sounds great, thanks, guys. And I'm like, I got this feeling where like, I just totally got away with this. Like, they think I'm like maybe wearing like an Oxford shirt, like typing away, working, and I'm just like, I haven't showered for nine days, and I'm sitting in my car, and I'm like, yes, I can do this, you know? So I'm having a blast. Uh, working, working 40 hours a week still, but traveling all over the West, and um, I decided to write a book about it. And I took it to a bunch of publishers, and they all hated it. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just self-publish it. Let's see how it goes, you know. And it turns out, like, a few people liked it, you know. Like, at the time, you know, I'm like, well, whatever. I'll just bypass the whole system, then. That's fun, you know. I'm making some money. I get to travel to write articles for Climbing Magazine. I pitch them ideas. Like, half of them they say yes to. I meet photographers, and I'm like, yeah, let's go climbing. And I still suck, but we still tell some stories, you know. Um, you know, I got to go, got to go to France and climb, got to go to Norway, got to go to Switzerland, New Mexico, if anybody's been there, it's pretty exotic. Um, and, uh, and I finally get to go back to, to Zion National Park and be one of these little specks on the walls up there, uh, in this magnificent place. I've been looking up these walls for like a decade. And, my friend Ethan uh, found, found me and asked me to mentor him in how to write for magazines. And he just like emailed me out of the blue. And I said, sure, you know, I can try to help you. Like, I'll teach you how to do this. And you can maybe teach me how to climb big walls. So, so we did. And, but um, we're up here. And I can see the buses going by. And I can watch them like, pull out of the stop. And then the bus driver, who knows where the climbers are, stops the bus in the middle of the road. And I can tell people are taking our photos. And we are these heroic guys. And, I'm taking a shit into a bag, you know, and I'm like, another time might have been better, but that's cool, you know. And we spend all day on this thing, and 
Ethan's like, okay, you get the last two pitches. And I'm like, great, okay. And it's getting dark, and I have all this anxiety. I'm like, oh, it's going to be dark. It's going to be dark. And I'm climbing as fast as I can, you know, and I'm, like, putting stuff in, bounce testing it, hoping it doesn't hit me in the head. And, like, I'm, like, just terrified. I'm going to, like, you know, it's going to get dark on me. And I hear Ethan down there, and I'm like, is he listening to a podcast on, like, a radio? And, like, this is fairly casual for him, I guess. Great, good, I'm terrified. <laughs> then it gets dark, and you're like, well, I'm fucked now. You know, like, I guess it's, there's no, you know, what am I going to do, wait up here for 12 hours? And I have to do three hook moves, and I've never done a hook move before, and I'm, like, pulling these things off my harness going, I guess this is okay, and okay, that's good. And I have to do three of them in a row, and I'm terrified, and all these buses have stopped going through the canyon, so it's just me and Ethan, and I'm so lonely but I'm having the time of my life. And I like clip the chains, get over, you know, and we're done. And I'm, and I'm like, I've achieved something, you know, like this is, this is a wonderful thing for me. I'm very conscious that I'm having the time of my life. You know, like, this is amazing. Like, I'm very grateful to be doing this stuff. Because when I go back to Denver, I live near Colfax Avenue, which is a pretty rough CD stretch. And um, I interact with a lot of homeless people. And every once in a while, I'm handing, like, you know, $2 to somebody and, like, you know, saying, yeah, hey, man, have a good day. You know, and, like, I look at the guy, and the guy's, like, looks like he's 55, but I know he's, like, maybe 35 or 40. You know, like, he's my age. And I'm, like... For a second, I know I can be this guy. You know, like if I had just like, just a second, you know, not not gone the way I was going to go, like not quit drinking, like I could be out of my ass if people didn't care about me and if I didn't stick with it. You know, I could be this guy living in the street, you know, day to day, hoping I can get like a forty or whatever. You know, so I'm very conscious of it, and uh, I've always liked this quote from Kurt Vonnegut. I urge you to please notice when you are happy and exclaim or murmur or think at some point. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. And I think we don't do enough of this, myself included. You know, like, we have millions of times a day we could be happy, but we, you know, choose to complain or, or worry about being late or worry about things not working out or all these things that never eventually happen. But I've been trying harder to embrace these things. So I'm going to go through a few things that make me happy, things I love. Uh, my girlfriend, love my girlfriend, yeah. <laughs> I listed her first because she's uh, taught me, like, daily, you know, I can read this Kurt Vonnegut quote every day, but it's something else to, like, live with somebody who's always like, ah, oh, I just like going out for breakfast with you. Oh, I just like the sun, you know? She's just happy, and I'm like, yeah, I should do this, too. I need to announce these things, you know? And most often, when I do remember to announce those things, it's pizza. Um, <laughs> something I love, too, Detroit-style pizza. I uh, love these two guys. These are my two closest friends, Nick and Jason, who made the drive here. But we, uh, we all waited tables at a restaurant together in college, so these guys have been with me since we were getting kicked out of bars for whatever reason. Um, and we still, we all live within about 15 blocks of each other in Denver. Um, and, you know, I don't know if any of you have friends from the Midwest, but we are, we never miss a good move. Like, this is, like, you can measure our friendship by the number of couches we have taken upstairs, and you always know it's going to be okay. You know, I look at some of these guys who are pro-movers, who are trying to move furniture into places, and I'm like, 
I think Nick and Jason could have handled that better, you guys. Like, I think you, I think you dinged up the wall over there with the, that part of the sofa. Uh, I love old school hip hop. Yeah. Like people talk about, you know, oh, it's you know, like that the small town is not, it's, it's disconnected, not disconnected anymore, but. Man, I had to drive an hour to buy CDs, you know, and like to get hip hop was a battle. Like this is a whole other story, you know, but I found it. I love diners, even if they're not that great. I love coffee. That kind of goes without saying. I love bears. <laughs> love dogs. I love burritos. I, some people, you know, have said that, that we should, we should something, you know, like build a wall, you know, politically, you know, to, to cut off Mexico, and I'm just like, have you had have you had tacos? Like, <laughs> like, I've had single tacos that make that sound like a bad idea. Like, get over it, man. Like, I love the desert. I love sleeping in the dirt. I love bicycles. I love uh, that specific kind of suffering that you're not supposed to say suffering, I guess, but. Anybody who spends any time in the outdoors has these uncomfortable moments where you're like, man, I'm cold, and you can't do shit. You're just like, I just got to put my hood up, you know, or complain, which doesn't get you invited back a lot, you know. Uh, I love sunsets. Big shout out to sunsets, especially in the desert, right? Uh, I love people who don't believe they are stuck in a situation. Uh, I love telling people I'm a writer. Where I grew up and where I come from, this is not a job. You know, I don't like, nothing against my high school guidance counselor, but if I had said, like, I want to be an adventure writer, he'd be like, what the fuck is that? Like, what are you talking about? It's not a job. Like, you can't apply. Like, where are the want ads for this position? Like, you have to make it. And, like, I tell my dad, it, like, it beats the shit out of working, you know? But um, it's great, you know? Like, I get to go on essentially vacations and write about them. And try to create things and tell stories about the outdoors. And it's like the most wonderful thing in the world. And even if I was only doing it like one month a year, I would still think it's great, you know? Uh, love, I love running about five or six hours every weekend with this, with this jerk. Uh, Jason and I ran, we're supposed to run 50 miles on May 14th, and I think we're ready. But uh, he used to weigh about 60 pounds more than he does, and now he's... Uh, now we do this, and you know, some people listen to podcasts when they run, or like, I don't know, explosions in the sky, like you know, great, great music that they like. And I, I listen to this guy talk, and <laughs> until until we suffer enough that that we're not talking anymore. And uh, the the thing I like about Jason is he always reminds me. Well, our, our relationship, I think I was trying to estimate how much of it is shit talking versus like actual genuine moments with each other. And I think it's about 55% shit talking and 45% like real things, you know, like, hey man, you know, like the right girl's gonna come along and she's gonna realize how wonderful of a person you are. Cause you are, man, you know, and like, I'm gonna be so happy when that happens cause I won't have to fucking listen to you talk <laughs> about women anymore. <laughs> It's like if you deconstruct that sentence, it's probably like pretty, pretty 55, 45. Um, but this guy will never stop busting my balls when I'm like trying to say, when he knows I'm like trying to give myself a break. He's like, are you sure? Like something like two weeks ago, he goes, ah, I was complaining about something. He just goes, ah, you're just telling yourself the wrong story. You got to change the narrative, buddy. I'm like, oh, you're right. And that's his way of saying, you know, get it together. You don't, don't be making excuses. Um, 
And I love it because you can tell yourself whatever story, you know. And, and most of us who are in this room are probably basically born on second base, you know, um, as far as things go in the world. You know, none of us are growing up having to walk three miles to get water. I mean, if you're playing outside for fun, you, you have an advantage. And you probably have it pretty good in most aspects. Because um, I think, you know, I've developed from this, from this addiction story that I have with myself. You know, I have to wake up every day for like, 14 years and be like, am I going to drink today? Because that would be really easy. Because like a friend of mine asked me, like, you ever think about just having a beer? And I'm like, yeah, just daily. I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> have you had beer? It's awesome. <laughs> but I got to sit down and t- like look at myself and go, well, OK, where is this going to take me? Like, why do I need this? Oh, it would be relaxing. Oh, it tastes good. Yeah, everybody else is doing it. And it's like, are any of these real reasons? No, they're just bullshit, you know? And like, so I've developed a pretty, you know, Pretty dialed-in bullshitometer is what I call it, and uh, thanks to thanks to you know my friends too. You know you're like you're not letting yourself off easy in most circumstances because it translates to everything else. You know you wake up every day and you got to do one thing, and if you do it 95%, you're like, ah, man, I made it till 10 o'clock without without drinking beer, smoking weed. I think I'll just have, I think I'll just have a little nip. You know like that's not going to go anywhere for me. Like in five weeks, I'm going to be a disaster again. You know I'm going to be on the street. So you can't give yourself these excuses. And uh, I, think, I think like I am not awaiting this, but I would like people to take away, like, what is the big change? You know, if you're unhappy or you think things could be better, you know, what is the big bang that you can create in your life? Um, based on if you like my theory of the big bang theory of extreme joy, um, whether, you know, it's any of these things, you know, like refusing to stop lying to yourself, like, you know, quitting your job, getting out of an unhappy relationship, starting a new job, starting a business, you know, these things that we're, the big scary things, there are people out here doing these things. They may not be you, but you could do them. And all you need is somebody next to you who's like making you think, oh, that guy's, you know, he's not that special. I mean, smart or that girl's not that crazy, but she's doing this. So like, why can't I do it? And uh, that's kind of how I've built basically my existence the last five years. Um, in closing, I just would like to remind everybody that this whole thing is, you know, everything you do, that's your story, and you are in control of it to a certain extent. That's my story. Thanks for listening to it. Support for the show comes from the good people at Patagonia. They strive to use raw materials that are good for the planet, like hemp. Requiring no pesticides or synthetic fertilizers and no irrigation, hemp produces a strong fiber. Unfortunately, it's illegal to grow it in the U.S. Patagonia supports the Industrial Hemp Farming Act to bring production stateside. Their new short film, Harvesting Liberty, is about the reintroduction of hemp into Kentucky's agriculture. Watch it at patagonia.com. A big thank you to our supporting sponsors, REI, who believes that life outdoors is a life well-lived, and Fireside Provisions, great meals for every adventure. And to Kuat Racks, the little company who believed that they could build a better bike rack. But can I just hauled our bikes from Seattle to Five Point and then back to Moab on our Envy Rack for some desert mountain biking. Easy to use, and the bikes are secure. Thanks, Kuat. Support for the diaries comes from you. 
Thank you to everybody who has donated. Seriously, your donations help keep making the diaries better. Every dollar helps. If you want to contribute, go to dirtbagdiaries.com and click the pledge button in the upper right-hand corner and join us. Brendan, thanks for sharing your story with us today. And over the years, do yourself a favor and go pick up 60 meters to anywhere. You can order it off mountaineersbooks.org or at Amazon or at your local bookstore. Even better. Brendan will be doing a number of presentations and book signings over the tour. You can find dates and more of his writing at semirat.com. Music today from Tri Trikeon, Lately Kind of Yeah, Jason Shaw. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nils Koto composed our theme song and additional music throughout the episode. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode of The Diaries was mixed and edited by Jacob Bain and produced by General Rebecca Call and me, Fisco Hall. You have been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Five Point.